morning, church. It is a joy to be back with you on this Lord's Day. And as you have observed through the songs that we sang this morning, um, there's a a thread, a theme that moves throughout. And it has to do with difficulty or trial, suffering, and God's goodness. And every week that Jonathan and I have an opportunity to think about the songs, we try our very best to select songs that go right along with the text for the day. So let me begin with this question. The question is, how do you deal with trials and sufferings in your life? One of the joys uh, of being a pastor here is getting to celebrate with you, like birthdays and babies. Those are always fun things to hear about and celebrate. But there's also the awareness of difficulty, challenges, suffering. I am keenly aware of most of you in your own personal stories that many of you have experienced suffering, whether that's the experience of watching mom and dad get a divorce. For some of you, it was the loss of a parent, maybe the loss of both parents, the loss of a child. We have people here who have had miscarriages, debilitating disease. I was just with a sweet saint this past week at the hospital with cancer. Maybe it's a difficult uh, relational fallout that you've had with a friend or coworker, maybe a family feud, financial trauma, which some of us have experienced. And honestly, we can sit here all day and recount lots of difficult situations and painful experiences The fact is, if you're breathing, you've experienced suffering. And if you continue to breathe, you will continue to experience suffering. It's what we would say is a fact of life. It's part of the fall. Sin brings forth what? Death. And so if Christ does not return, then you will die. And you will also watch people that you love pass on before you. But it's not just that. Because we live in a fallen world, the fact is that you will be taken advantage of, you will be unloved, you will be uncared for, you will be disrespected at some point, if not at multiple points throughout your life. I know that some of you uh, who have come to me lately have had serious medical issues. Some of you have had um, suffered abuse. And what makes that worse is that sometimes that abuse comes from a parent, sometimes that abuse has come from a pastor, sibling, a babysitter. And for some of you, you say it's not just one or two of those things, but it's all of those things that I've experienced. And so again, we're aware that suffering is a part of this world, but the question is for us this morning that when suffering comes, what do you do with it? What do you do When suffering comes your way, I think it is typical for us to ask the question, why has suffering come my way? Why is this happening to me? Why is this happening now? Why does it have to be so painful? Why does it seem like other people are not suffering just as much as I am. 
And the real question when faced with these real and troubling trials is, what are you going to do with all that? What are you going to do when you are submerged in suffering? What are you going to do when you're forsaken by friends? Who are you going to turn to when you're draped in darkness? Well, there's good news this morning. God has given us a word. And so we're going to turn our attention to a book that has provided God's people with a powerful and persuasive account of just how trustworthy and reliable and faithful God is in the midst of your suffering. It's the first of the five books of wisdom literature. It's the book of Job. And so if you have your Bible, you want to grab that and you want to turn to Job chapter 1. Job gives us an example of how to respond to suffering in this world, but it's more than that. It's not just a mere manual to help you in your sufferings. The truth contained in these 42 chapters are really a map of discovery, discovering just how great, how beautiful a treasure the unseen God is. God gives us a glimpse of his perfect goodness and his perfect sovereignty as he controls every aspect of our life. And throughout the book of Job, what we see is a man who's clinging to what he knows to be true about God. Even in the midst of his trial, he is tethered tightly to the promises of God, hanging on for dear life. And we have the advantage because we can see what Job cannot see. We see God's intention for Job, but for him, it's a plight that he's trying to figure out. He's hoping, just hoping that God will rescue him from all of these circumstances. And one after another, his wife and his friends are making accusations and insinuations about his own righteousness and God's goodness. Job is hanging on. And so we're going to look at this wonderful and moving book. It's a book that one commentator says it is one of the best gifts of God to men. So let's pray and ask for the Lord to open up our eyes to behold wonderful things from the book of Job. Let's pray. Father, we are desperate for your help. We need your help. Lord, if someone is not currently suffering, the truth remains that suffering will come. And so we need help for today, grace for today, but we also need grace for tomorrow because when suffering comes, Lord, we know that we can trust you and turn to you, but we need faith to do that. So would you please be our help? Would you store up truth in our hearts that we would treasure it and have it readily available for that difficult day? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, if you're taking notes, you want to write this down. Here's the main idea. In the midst of our suffering, we need the eyes of faith to see that God is our sovereign, sympathetic, and sufficient Savior who alone can satisfy our souls. In the midst of our suffering, we need the eyes of faith to see that God is our sovereign, sympathetic, and sufficient Savior who can satisfy our souls. And we're just going to walk all the way through Job chapter 1, and we've outlined it like this. Four major headings. First, we'll look at Job's condition in verses 1 through 5. Then God's consent in verses 6 through 12. Then we'll examine Job's catastrophe in verses 19 or 13 through 19. 
And then finally, Job's commitment in verses 20 and 21. But before we dive into the outline, let's get into some historical context. And so we just want to ask the questions, who, what, where, why, and how. So we'll begin with the who. Job begins with, there was a man. And the Hebrew actually begins with, a man there was. And this opening to the letter, or this opening to the book, has caused many scholars to believe that this is a work of fiction. Because that opening is almost like saying, once upon a time. So the question we have to ask is, was Job a real person? It might seem silly for us to ask that, but many people think that he was not. They think the book is mere mythology. This week, Jess was at the, the, the library, the Marine Library with the kids, and she pointed out a book that talked about Christian mythologies. And every story in there was a quote-unquote myth. So, is the author here just giving us this great story? Trying to just teach us some principles? Is this devoid of accuracy historically? Well, I can tell you with certainty that that is not the case. You say, Dom, how do you know that's not the case? Well, because the prophet Ezekiel certainly didn't think Job was fictional. In Ezekiel chapter 14 and verse 14, also in verse 20, we learn that the Lord spoke through his prophet and he put Job right next to godly men like Noah and Daniel. Those men who were known to be righteous in their conduct in the face of opposition and trial. And then when you flip on over to the New Testament, you see Jesus' own brother describing Job. So look here at James 5 and verse 11. James writes there, Behold, we count those blessed who persevere. You have heard of the perseverance of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings that the Lord is full of compassion and mercy. And just like the Lord's compassion and mercy is not a myth and not fictional, neither is the man Job. In fact, the Apostle Paul quotes Job in Romans 11.35. So what we see in both the Old and New Testament that Job's faithfulness is actually held out as something that God's people can look and learn from. So Job, he must be considered as a historical figure. An historical figure whose intense suffering and personal experiences recorded in this book for our education. These are timeless and universal truths, but they're universal in that they're based on facts, not fables. The next question is what? What is the book of Job about? Well, many scholars see similarities between Job and these ancient Near Eastern parables concerning the topic of theodicy. You say, Dom, what is theodicy? It's just a fancy word to try to describe the vindication of divine goodness and providence in view of the existence of evil. It's that age-old question, how can God be good? How can he be sovereign? How can he be powerful? And yet there's evil in the world. But the book of Job is not primarily trying to solve this problem of evil. God is vindicated from every accusation in the book, but from Job's perspective, you realize this, he never gets the answer. He doesn't see what we see. He doesn't read what we read. In fact, what happens is God shows up in the whirlwind, and then what happens? Job dies, never getting the answer to his questions until he steps foot into paradise. And so you can use the book of Job as an apologetic, but it's more a theology proper. 
It describes the character and the nature and the works and the attributes of God. The next question is when? When do these events take place? Well, the text doesn't say, and scholars guess that Job probably lived before Moses. This was likely during the time of Abraham and the patriarchs. But there is no reference in the book of Job to Israel's history. There's no mention of the captivity in Egypt. There's no mention of the exodus out of Egypt. There's no mention of the giving of the law at Mount Sinai, the conquest of the land. There are no time references like that, but there's also no mention of the priest or the temple or the monarchy. In fact, there's no mention at all of God's law or God's verbal revelation, which is fascinating. And you say, well, shouldn't we know all those details? And I would tell you, no, we don't need to know those details in order for us to be impacted and drink deep from the treasures that are in this book. What about where? The where is there. It's in the land of us. And we're not certain where this us is. It's probably in the region of Edom. The fact that these things took place in the land of us, though, does communicate something significant. That This isn't limited just to the people of Israel, but this is worldwide. It is for everyone, everywhere. The why is very similar to our main idea. And let me just reiterate it here that in the midst of your suffering, you, Christian, you need the eyes of faith to believe that God is sovereign when he doesn't seem, seem good. The how is probably the biggest and most important question. And it's this, how can God be sovereign and allow all of this evil in the world? You just turn on the TV, look on the internet, check your social media, and it just seems like evil, 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 evil. What in the world is God doing? How is he still good in light of all that is going on in the world? And at the heart of that question is the million-dollar question. How can God be trusted? How can I trust him? Is he good or is he not? Now with that framework and background, Let's jump into verse 1. Job's condition. There was a man in the land of us whose name was Job, and that man was blameless, upright, fearing God, and turning away from evil. Now, that description right there, three times Job is referred to in this way. Once by the author here, but by Yahweh himself in verse 8, and then again in chapter 2 and verse 3. We're told that Job is blameless. This word describes Job's horizontal relationships. If you have the King James Bible, it says that he was perfect. We know that he was not perfect. Job knows that he's not perfect. He says in verse, or chapter 13, he knows the iniquities of his youth. He says in chapter 14 that his sin is before him. So it's not talking about perfection, but it is telling us that his life was marked by extreme godliness. It says he was upright. To be upright just means that he's not crooked, that he's not bending or swerving morally, so that in all of his dealings and decisions, he's walking the straight and narrow. He is an upright man. And this characterization of him, this, he's blameless and he's upright, it helps to establish early on Job's innocence as we see all these things begin to unfold. It also says here 
that he was fearing God and turning away from evil. And the second idea describes his vertical relationship. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 10 and verse 12. It tells us exactly what fearing God entails. You ask yourself, do I fear God? Well, ask yourself this. Do you love him? Do you obey him? Are you walking with God? If you do, then that's what it means to fear God. It's simply a relationship with God that's lived out in practical ways. You see, when you and I, when we fear God, we recognize God for who he is. We revere him. We respect him. We regard him. And we respond to him in a way that demonstrates that he is God and we are not. That's what it means to fear God. And the consequence of fearing God is that you will turn away from evil. That's what you do when you fear God. You don't turn away from God necessarily. You turn away from all that God hates. You turn away from evil. My um, mom sent us a picture. She lives in Arizona and she uh, encounters scorpions and rattlesnakes pretty frequently in Arizona. So she sent us a snapshot of a dead rattlesnake. And I act like I'm tough, but when I see those things, I get a little freaked out too. I get the heebie-jeebies, you know, as my skin starts to crawl a little bit. Because when you see a snake, when you see a spider, when you see something that you're afraid of, you don't go and start petting it. You run away from it because that's what fear does. And when we fear God, we turn away from evil. And Job, this marked his life, constantly turning away from evil. And Job really sets the standard because Solomon comes later on and gives us proverb after proverb about the fear of the Lord. In Proverbs 9.10, we learn, the fear of Yahweh is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Well, Job modeled this for Solomon way before Solomon ever existed. Job is full of wisdom here at the outset, fearing God. But the thing that I want you to notice is that his fear begins to wane. His wisdom begins to wane because his wife comes to him and begins to have him question God's goodness. And his friends cause him to question God's goodness. And even as Job begins strong, you begin to see him wear down. Well, not only was Job blameless, but look at the text. It says he's blessed. Verse 2, seven sons and three daughters were born to him. And right out of the gate, what the writer wants us to understand that is that his family was a huge source of blessing. You and I, we don't pay much attention to the description here. We just think, man, 10 kids, that's a lot of kids. You know, the back of the minivan, that's a lot of stick figures, stickers that are on the back of the minivan. But we need to understand something about ancient Near East. The numbers, seven sons, that's perfection. And three, which brings you to ten, which is another way of saying he had the perfect family. He had an idyllic family. This is a blessing that Job is experiencing. You know, There was a time in our American history where the prototypical American family was a married couple, a man and a woman, and two kids, a boy and a girl. Well, the text here is telling us that, man, Job's quiver was full. His heart was content. He has the perfect family setup, which sets him up 
for a big fall. When you think of the suffering that he endures, the more that you have, the more perfect your scenario, the harder you fall. So he has a family that is blessed, but he's also financially blessed. Look there at verse 3. It says his possessions were 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 pair of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and very many servants. And before we think, oh, how cool, he just has a big petting zoo. No, all of this is communicating in modern-day vernacular that Job has stacks of money. This guy is extremely wealthy. His stock portfolio was off the charts. 7,000 sheep, that just means that all this wealth was measured by his livestock, and he had 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels. Back in the day, this was your cryptocurrency, camels. They didn't have cars, they had camels. And these camels were used to help people travel, so with 3,000 of them, think about it, Job has like the biggest caravan and car sales dealership in the world. 500 female donkeys. At this point, you say, why all the specifics? Well, two reasons for this one. First of all, females, they can breed, which means that Job's wealth didn't stop here. He had options. He could breed them. He could trade them. He could add more to what he already had. But it also speaks of luxury. You say, luxury? How do donkeys provide luxury? Well, they're milk. You can go and Google, not right now, but you can Google later on Cleopatra's skincare. You'll see that she used tons and tons of donkey milk to soften up her skin. So if you want to, you can go get yourself some donkeys, I guess, and soften up your skin. It also says he had 500 pair of oxen. That's pair of oxen, which means these are all of his tractors. This is his workforce. 500 oxen can till a sizable acreage. And on top of all of that, the text says, and very many servants, which means He's got a ginormous staff and a huge payroll. I mean, this brother's wealth was breathtaking. His family is blessed. His finances are blessed. But also look at his flame. His fame is blessed. Look at what it says at the end of verse 3. It says, that man was the greatest of all the sons of the East. Which is to say that everyone knew Job. They respected Job. They looked up to Job. He wasn't just a rich man, but he was rich in character. Turn over with me to Job chapter 29. Job chapter 29. Let me just show you this passage. This is before Job experiences the loss he does. He's thinking back and he says this. Oh, verse 2, that I were in the months gone by, And in the days when God kept me, when his lamp shone over my head, and by his light I walked through the darkness, as I was in the prime of my days, when the intimate counsel with God was over my tent, when the Almighty was yet with me, when my children were around me, when my steps were bathed in butter, and the rock poured out for for me streams of oil, when I went out of the gate of the city, when I took my seat in the square, the young men saw me and they hid, and the old men arose and stood. The princes stopped talking and they put their hands on their mouths. The voices of the nobles was hidden away and their tongue clung to their palate. For the ear heard and it called me blessed. The eye saw and it gave witness of me. 
because I provided escape for the afflicted who cried for help and the orphan who had no helper. The blessing of the one ready to perish came upon me, and I made the widow's heart sing for joy. I clothed myself with righteousness, and it clothed me. My justice was like a robe and a turban. I was eyes to the blind and feet to the lame. I was a father to the needy, and I searched out the case which I did not know. Look down at verse 21. To me they listened and waited and kept silent for my counsel. After my words they did not speak again, and my speech dropped on them. They waited for me as for the rain and opened their mouth as for the late Rain. Oh, they respected Job. They looked up to Job. What a godly, dignified man. He has a blessed family, blessed finances, blessed fame. But look there at verse 4. He has a blessed faithfulness. The final happy note conveys Job's blessing and his condition with his faithful intercession on behalf of his family. Verse 4, his sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day. And they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and to drink with them. Now it happened when the days of feasting had completed their cycle that Job would send and set them apart as holy. And he would rise up early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, perhaps my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. And thus Job did continually. What a beautiful picture. I know some of you have some family trouble. This is what a family should be like. Celebration, joy, food, feasting, everyone getting along. It really is the perfect family photo. There's harmony in the home. And Job recognizes how special this is. And as the patriarch of the family, he wants to ensure that this familial love and joy continues. He knows that sin will destroy a family, and so he takes it upon himself to pray and to offer sacrifices. He even offers up these preemptive sacrifices on behalf of his children just in case they're doing something to dishonor the Lord. And we're told here that this wasn't just some irregular practice. No, Job is doing this every morning at the crack of dawn. First thing, he is praying on behalf of his children. And this is the point where we pause, and I just want to say a word to you dads. As the priest of your home, as the father, as the leader, as the tone setter, are you faithfully praying for your children? Are you setting them apart as holy and doing everything in your power to intercede for your kids? This is Job's reputation. You say, well, what's Job's fear? It's right there in the text. His fear was that one of them might curse God in their hearts. Now listen to this. This word curse here is extremely important throughout the book. Why? Because Satan wants nothing more than for Job to curse God to his face. Job's wife tempts him to curse God. Job's friends accuse him of cursing God in his heart. And what's interesting as we think about this is that his worst fear is that his kids would curse God. He himself is tempted to curse God. Now don't miss this. As we look at those few first verses, the order of the blessing is very intentional. His blessed character is placed before his blessed family 
and his finances and his fame because we're supposed to get this sense that Job's physical, tangible blessings are coming as a result of his obedience. Do you see that? And we say, well, that's the way it's supposed to work, isn't it? We reap what we sow. When we're obedient, we welcome blessing. Our piety should bring God's favor. And the opposite is also true. Disobedience doesn't bring blessing. Our obedience will always make God happy. But our disobedience makes God angry with us, doesn't it? See, you and I, we might not think what God gives us is a blessing, but God is the one that determines what blessing is. We're going to have a horrible time identifying God's blessing if we're caught up in a health, wealth, prosperity type gospel. Like only good things come to me and come my way when I'm being very good. And then we start working for God's favor and believing that if we just do certain things and jump through certain hoops and avoid certain things, then God will be more favorable to us. The reality for you and I is that we wouldn't choose certain things. We certainly wouldn't choose suffering for ourselves. To be stripped away from everything that we hold dear so that we might have more of God, who's willing to raise their hand and say, yes, take it away. If it's going to give me more of God, if it's going to help me see him more clearly, if I'm going to be able to behold him more, take it away, God. Take away my health. Take away my wife. Take away my kids. We're not saying that. But God knows what's best. He knows what's going to provide deeper intimacy, greater reliance, greater satisfaction. And so Job, he provides this example for us. He is a model man which provides him to be the model candidate to teach us this lesson. Suffering can and will be used by God to bring about greater blessing than he ever imagined. Greater blessing than if suffering never came. And so Job becomes our teacher. So that's the first scene. Job has a highlight of his condition. He is blessed. He is a great man, a pious man, a prosperous man. But now the camera angle changes from verse 5 to verse 6. The setting changes from earth to heaven. And now we get this behind-the-scenes look at the heavenly courts. This is, again, something that Job never discovered. He never learned this until he got into heaven. Let's look at Job, or God's consent in verse 6. It says, Now it was... The day that the sons of God came to stand before Yahweh and Satan also came among them. So we caught a glimpse of the heavenly throne room last week in the book of Isaiah chapter 6. And we learned that God's heavenly dwelling place is portrayed as his royal court. He is the king who sits on the throne and he has seraphim and all of these majestic angelic beings serving his sovereign will. We see the same thing in Revelation chapter 4 and 5. But the heavenly throne room is the place where Yahweh, the sovereign, sits 
and dictates everything that happens here on earth. And who's there? It says the sons of God. These are the angelic beings. Now, kids, when you read sons of God, don't think that God got married and had kids. This is simply saying that these are created beings. These sons of God come and stand before Yahweh, but look what it says, that Satan also is among them. Now, the Hebrew here doesn't describe this as his name, but what he does. Ha-Satan, he is the accuser, the opposer. He is the enemy. Look here at Revelation chapter 12, because it gives us a, a very clear picture of his insidious character. Revelation 12 and verse 9 says this, And the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old, who is called the devil and Satan. You say, well, what does he do? He deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and the angels were thrown down with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come for the accuser of the brothers has been thrown down. You say, well, what does Satan do? There it is right there. He accuses the brethren day and night. But it's important to note that as Satan comes before God, he comes before God because he's summoned. Satan listens to God. Satan obeys God. Satan isn't the one who's showing the initiative here. It's all God. You know, too many have suggested that Christianity is about dualism. Two opposite and equal forces. But the Bible says something dramatically different. Satan isn't on the same level as God. He is a created being that only does what God says. What does he do? He makes accusations. And he's going to try to indict Job. But it's not just indicting Job that Satan is after. He's actually trying to put God on trial. And as I was studying this this week, my anger and hatred was building for this demon's audacity. Look at the text. Yahweh said to Satan, from where do you come? Satan answered Yahweh and said, from roaming about on the earth and walking around it. Again, God takes the initiative. He's the first one to speak. Satan is answering God, and what he says is, I've been roaming about on the earth, walking around it, which makes it sound like he's just kind of strolling the earth. But we know that he's actually on a seek and destroy mission. He's hunting like a roaring lion seeking to devour people. And God knows this. And so God puts before Satan, his servant, Job, and he draws Satan out. Then Yahweh said to Satan, have you set your heart upon my servant Job? For there is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. The question to you is, who's the one that brings up Job? God does. This isn't random. He's the one that creates the conflict. 
He's the one that's intentionally allowing this challenge to happen. God wants Satan to set his heart to put all of his focus and energy and efforts on Job. And Yahweh says there's no one like him. Nobody. So Satan, if you can cause him to fall, it would be extremely disgraceful. Look, if there's anything that Satan hates, it hate, he hates righteousness. He hates when his children, God's children, rightly obey him and honor him and bring him glory. So when Satan hears this challenge, he's chomping at the bit. He can't wait to get his devious hands all over Job and make him fall. Look at Satan's response. Verse 9, and Satan answered Yahweh and said, Does Job fear God without cause? Do you see what he's doing? Do you see what he's insinuating? It's wicked. Satan suggests the only reason that Job fears God is because of God's gifts. He doesn't love you. He doesn't want you. He only worships you because you do him favors. That's why he worships you. He only loves you because he loves the stuff that you give. That's the only reason, God. Look at verse 10. Have you not made a hedge about him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. The hedge, the house, the blessing of his hands, all his possessions and wealth, that's what compels him to worship you. But just take it away. Just take it away, I dare you to, and see what he does. I mean, Satan has the audacity to accuse God himself. Job is just your little puppy, and he's going to keep wagging his tail because you give him Scooby Snacks. Don't do it anymore. See what happens. And interestingly, the word is not curse. It's actually bless. It's an insidious sarcasm. Then he'll bless you to your face. So Satan says in verse 11, but send forth your hand now and touch all that he has and he will surely curse you to the face. This is wordplay here. Look back at verse 5. Job blessed his children. He'd rise up early. He'd intercede for him. And it says there he would send out his blessings for his children. And now what Satan says is, God, as Job's father, you send out your hand. He's talking major trash to God. And the arrogance is staggering Verse 12, then Yahweh said to Satan, behold, all that he has is in your hand, only do not send forth your hand toward him. In the previous verse, Satan tells God to send his hand out to Job, but now God flips it on Satan and says, no, 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 I'm not going to send my hand, you send your hand. We know from scripture that Yahweh can't be tempted, nor does he tempt anyone so he, instead of being directly involved in this evil, gives Satan free reign, but it's limited. 
He can't go thus far. He limits him and restrains him until we get to chapter 2. With this whole conversation, do you realize this is the longest conversation that God has with Satan in all the scriptures? Again, this isn't dualism. Satan is the accuser, but he's not on equal footing with God. What we need to learn here is that he is subject to God. He's summoned by God. He's silent when God speaks. He thinks he's so sneaky and strategic, but ultimately he's just carrying out God's sovereign will. So Satan goes out from the presence of Yahweh. He doesn't argue. He doesn't debate. He just goes and does what he's meant to do. And then the scene changes once again. First from heaven, or from earth to heaven, now back down to earth. And here's Job's catastrophe. Look there at verse 13. Now it happened on that day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in the house of their brother, the firstborn. What a setup. This scene is happening simultaneously to the heavenly one. It's all happening in one day. Look at verse 14. A messenger came to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkey feeding beside them, and the Sabaeans fell on them and took them. They also struck down the young men with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. The Sabaeans fall on them. These are like the Bedouin pirates who come from the south, and they attack. The oxen and the donkey, this isn't the top of the food chain, but what we see here in this narrative is that God is showing us that it goes from bad to worse to worse to worse to worse. Look at verse 16. While this one was still speaking, another also came and said, the fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the young men and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. And you say, wait a second, the timing here is impeccable. Satan has timed this perfectly It is all happening at the same time. Before he can even begin to stop speaking, another servant comes in. But I want you to notice real quickly that it says from the servant that a fire of God came down from heaven. That's exactly what Satan wants Job to think. You see, the Sabaeans coming There's an answer for that. What a bunch of jerks. Why would they do that? What a bunch of evil men. But now it's, but where does fire from God come? If this is lightning, who's in charge of lightning? God is. The oxen are destroyed. The donkeys are destroyed. The sheep are fried. And all of the shepherds are gone. It gets worse. Verse 17 Well, this one was still speaking. Another came also and said, the Chaldeans set up three companies and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the young men with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. And now the Chaldeans get involved. And just a little subtle detail here in the story. Because the Sabaeans are from the south, the Chaldeans are from the north, and Job is just getting sandwiched on all sides. It seems like everyone is against Job This time, it was Job's camels, the fleet of his camel cars, all carjacked. He's got nothing left. He's been devastated financially. In a matter of seconds, he hears all this news, and he hears the refrain again, and I alone 
have escaped to tell you. I just want to pause right here. How would this make you feel? Hearing this, tragic news. You've just lost, not one, not two, but all of your businesses. In a matter of seconds, everything you possessed is now gone. Your products, your people, your wealth, your future investments, everything kaput. It's in moments like these when the tsunami is hitting, one right after the other, this is where you say, well, at least I have what matters most. I can deal with that. At least I have my family. Verse 18, while this one was still speaking, another also came and said, your sons and daughters. And just imagine being Job. He sees the other servant coming. As soon as his eyes behold the servants, he knows what's coming. Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in the house of their brother, the firstborn. Again, Satan knows exactly what he's doing. Why is it at the firstborn's house? Because everyone's going to be there. Because the firstborn is Job's pride and joy. He's carrying the mantle. He's carrying the baton. The whole family is there. And they die. You say, how do they die? Is it the Sabaeans? Is it the Chaldeans? Are they come and stabbed and murdered? Verse 19, Behold, a great wind came from across the wilderness and touched the four corners of the house, and it fell on the young people, and they died, and I alone have escaped to tell you. And the question you have to ask is, who controls the wind? Look, if it was a wind, a gust of wind, if it was a tornado, you hit one corner of the house. But for this to hit all four corners of the house, there's only one who's in control of the wind and the elements like that, and it's not Mother Nature, it is God. What is God doing? This is the kind of news that would give you an instant heart attack. Job is pile-drived beat over and over and over like crashing waves. Now the stage is set. Satan, after doing all that damage, sits back, puts his hands up, he has his popcorn, and he's just waiting with seething, arrogant pride for what he thinks is inevitable. After all of that loss, after destroying his business, his wealth, his fame, and killing his family, now I'm going to get what I'm hoping for. Curse God to his face. How does Job respond? Look at verse 20. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head. These are the outward expressions of overwhelming sorrow. The tearing of your garment is the visible manifestation of deep inner 
grief and turmoil that's tearing away at his own heart. This is what you expect when someone is experiencing devastating loss. And it says that he fell to the ground. And the Hebrew idiom, which we're supposed to expect, is he fell and he wept. But it doesn't say that. It says he fell and he worshipped. He worshipped. Satan is expecting him to curse God and he does the exact opposite. He worships. Naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I shall return. You see, rather than asserting his rights, he's saying I'm just a temporary creature. This is the height of humility. I came into this world with nothing. I'm going to leave with nothing. But just so we don't sit back and accuse Job of being a fatalist, his next statement is the biggest shocker. At his lowest point, he doesn't just recognize who he is. He recognizes who God is. Yahweh gave and Yahweh has taken away. Blessed be the name of Yahweh. Satan says, you're going to curse God. Job experiences all this pain, and he says, I'm not entitled to anything. Yahweh is always right and always good, and he has the prerogative to give and take away. And this right here is the first, and it is the most profound declaration of God's rightness throughout the book. God can do whatever he wants because God is God, and God is always right, and God is always just, and God is always good. Satan so badly wanted to mock God by having the most righteous man curse him to his face. And I told you that word for curse is actually Baruch, Barak. It's bless. Satan is suggesting, again, that if Job is stripped of everything, that he is going to bless God in his face. But when Job loses everything, his fortune and his family, he actually blesses God like Satan never imagined. And the construction in the Hebrew is very distinct. It's a paraphrastic construction which emphasizes the enduring state of blessedness so it's even stronger than saying the word blessed. He is forever blessed. And look there at verse 22. Through all of this, Job did not sin, nor did he give offense to God. And this chapter ends on the sweetest, and for Satan, the most ironic note you say, what do you mean by that? All throughout the chapter, Satan is trying to get him to fall, to fall, to fall, to fall. In fact, you see it all throughout the narrative. The Sabaeans fall. The fire falls. The Chaldeans come and fall. Everything is falling. The house falls. Satan wants Job to fall. That word is actually nifal. But what we see here in verse 22 that Job did not give offense is the word tifal. And in a beautiful wordplay, everything that Satan wanted, Job did the exact opposite. He blessed God and was not even willing to give 
offense to God. And he said, Blessed be the name of Yahweh. What a conclusion to chapter 1. We read that and our heart aches for Job, and at the same time we rejoice with him. And we're supposed to read this and say, I want to be like that. I don't want to lose my wife and my kids, but if I ever do, I want to respond this way, knowing that God can take everything away. And if I have nothing else in this earth, if I have God, I have everything that I need. That is the essence of true worship. Psalm 73, 25 says this, Whom have I in heaven but you? And beside you, I desire nothing on earth. My flesh may fail, but God is the rock of my heart and my portion forever. Listen, church, I can't stress how important it is that we know God, that we know him and love him God is right now working through the church in a way that we can't even realize. Satan is day and night making accusations against every single Christian and the church of God. He hates the bride. He knows he can't defeat God, but he can come after the bride. And God has given us his spirit and he's strengthened us so that every accusation that Satan makes against us, we can disprove it by saying it's not about the gifts. It's not about the gifts. It's about the good giver of gifts. It's about God himself. That is what my soul loves and longs for. The gifts are just icing on the cake. But if I have God and I have nothing else, I have everything that I need. Let's pray. Oh, Father, Would you please help us to know that the way that we suffer matters, that the difficulties and trials that you send our direction are ultimately for our good because we believe that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose, Lord. So, yes, the way that we suffer matters. We can either magnify you or we could malign you. I'm so thankful, God, that you've given us your word. I'm so thankful that you've given us Christ, our Savior, the one who's provided salvation, the one who's given us hope, the one who suffered beyond our imagination. And Lord, when we think that Job was spared, his life was spared, You didn't spare your own son, but you delivered him up for us all. And how now will you not also give us freely all things because you already gave us the greatest gift in your son? Well, Lord, would you help us as a church to stand fast, to both manifest and display the glory of God and vindicate your character every time that wicked serpent slanders and spews hatred toward you and toward your church. Father, we are the pillar, the buttress of truth, and we want to uphold your reputation. So would you please strengthen us for that task? We pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen.